Well, who doesn't love a good courtroom drama? There are really few things that are more exciting, more emotionally stimulating than watching two incredibly talented lawyers go back and forth, especially in many circumstances where their stakes are so high, it's, it's really as high as they can be. And I think for me, that is the reason why I've been enjoying reading through John 5 so much. John 5 very much reads like a compelling, entertaining courtroom drama. If you think about it, if you were to recall a few couple weeks ago when we began the chapter, the Jewish leaders have brought, the Jewish state, if you will, has brought its claim against Christ. They have filed their charges against him. They put, as we discussed last week, the judge of the universe in the defense chair. And so last week, in a certain sense, what we heard was Jesus' opening statement. The opening statement of his trial, which is very important. But there's another crucial aspect that happens in any good courtroom, which is the summoning of witnesses. Would you open your Bibles to John chapter 5, verses 31 through 47. John chapter 5, beginning in verse 31. When you are there, I would invite you to again stand for the reading of God's word. John chapter 5, beginning in verse 31, thus saith the Lord. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? This bars the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Jesus has made some pretty bold claims throughout John chapter 5 up to this point. To summarize all of them, I think we could sort of say that his primary claim is to be the Son of God who was sent by God into the world to be the world's long-awaited Messiah. He is the Son of God who was sent into the world by the Father. But the question on the minds of his opponents is a very simple one. Can he prove it? And Jesus is very much anticipating this question. He knows that that's what they're interested in. You've made some bold claims. You got any evidence for those bold claims? 
And that's why he breaks into it in verse 31. Notice what he says there. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. So this sort of testifies to the courtroom scene that I believe Jesus has created here. Uh, because obviously Jesus is not saying that every time he says something, it's a lie until two others come and validate it. Jesus knows everything he says is true, but what he's saying in verse 31, he's actually hearkening to an Old Testament judicial principle. And in the Old Testament uh, judicial law, a claim against a person or a person's claim, an accusation, if you will, could not be found credible without the presence of two to three witnesses. In other words, in a court of law, you're not allowed to be your own witness. It's true because I say it's true. It's true because I saw it. Well, that's the claim. You need other witnesses to validate your claim. So that's all Jesus is saying. I'm not expecting you just to believe it just because I said it. That's not how law works. And so Jesus is recognizing he needs some validation. He needs some testimony, some witnesses to validate his claims. But emphatically, he is not saying that his claims are not true. As a matter of fact, he knows his claims are true because he has his own witness, which is greater than any witness you and I could possibly imagine or summon. And it's his own father. That's whom he's referencing in verse 32. Read verse 32 with me. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. The rest of the context goes on to make relatively clear that Jesus is referencing the testimony of his own father. How does Jesus know his claims are true? Did he come to discover them? Did he put pieces together and, oh, you know what? I think I'm the Messiah. Did he figure it out on his own? No, what Jesus is doing in this verse is giving us a remarkable insight into the great mystery of even in his incarnation, he had some incredible knowledge and clarity because of his divine nature of where he came from. He has his eternal consciousness with his divine nature, so much so that to speak in human languages, he remembers being in heaven when God sent him. He remembers the Father commissioning him. How do I know my claims are true? Because I was there when God sent me. God is the one who bears witness to my claims. God is the one who bears me witness that I am who I am saying that I am. And that's all the proof that Jesus needs. The Father has commissioned me for this. The Father bears witness, and that one testimony alone is all I need to make the claims about myself. But Jesus, in his mercy, he understands that the Jews that he's talking to weren't there for that. Right? No human was present when the eternal covenant of redemption was made within the Trinity. That was a compact within the Godhead. No one bears witness to that. So Jesus graciously condescends. Even though he has all the evidence he needs from the witness that the Father has borne to him, he is going to condescend and provide his listeners with additional resources that they actually can be held accountable to, which bear witness to his testimony. So you could really think of this passage as Jesus sort of standing as his own representation. He is defending himself in court. Or perhaps a better way to think about it is because Jesus is, the new claim is that the Father is the one who bears witness about me. So another way you could think about this is now the Father is on trial and Jesus is God's legal representative. Jesus is now, in following with the Old Testament, going to provide three witnesses 
Three proofs that the Father truly has sent him. He's going to vindicate himself and his Father by summoning three witnesses. And the first witness that Jesus needs to swear in is John the Baptist. John is Jesus' first witness. Verses 33 through 34 is where Jesus calls John to take the stand. Would you read those with me? You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. So Jesus' first appeal is to John the Baptist. Up to this point, John has been very clearly attesting to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. That he is the Lamb of God who is sent into the world to save the world. That he is to be followed, adored, and worshipped. This has been John's clear testimony ever since Jesus began his ministry. So John is Jesus' first proof. Now, here's the reason this is a compelling proof. Jesus gives us some interesting clarification. Jesus goes on, and it's no offense to John. I don't, think, I don't think there's any taken on John's behalf. I'm sure he understands. But Jesus goes on to say that in a more ideal world, Jesus wouldn't need to appeal to John. Because Jesus doesn't need human defense. In other words, Jesus is recognizing something kind of interesting here, which is typically in a court of law, you don't have a lesser authority establish a greater authority. It's supposed to be the other way around. A greater authority establishes a lesser authority. A doctor comes and establishes a medical claim made by a layperson. You don't have a layperson attesting to medical claims made by a doctor. It doesn't work that way. You need the greater authority to attest to the lesser authority. So the question is, if Jesus is infinitely greater than John, if Jesus' word is infinitely greater and more precious and infallible and more holy than John's word, how could John's word defend it? In a way, it can't. And so Jesus is recognizing, listen, I technically don't need human validation. But he says, but I'm going to leverage it. I'm going to, to, to offer you, John, so that you might be saved. So Jesus is recognizing, even though I personally don't need John as a witness, I know that it would, you will listen to him. So I'm going to leverage this just as an advantageous strategical move. Right? And, and we know this because notice how Jesus begins in verse 33. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. You know what Jesus is talking about there? Apparently, Jesus had been making these claims, and these leaders already wanted John the Baptist's opinions about them. So we see in this that John has clearly become an established authority in Israel. People are looking to John as, as a true leader of this messianic movement. They, they, they recognize and receive him as a true prophet. And they've already been sending, John, what are your thoughts on this? They're already recognizing him as an authority. So Jesus says, okay, I'll take advantage of that. This guy, John, who you accept as a prophet, he's on my side. He's on my team on this issue. And so that is why Jesus appeals to John the Baptist, who will back up all of his claims. However, although I think Jesus' strategy here was brilliant, it unfortunately by itself, without the working of the Spirit, is not enough to overcome the sinful hypocrisy of man. And we know that because Jesus recognizes that most of these people didn't listen to John's witness. Look at verse 35. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. 
Jesus metaphorically describes John's prophetic testimony as a burning, shining lamp. If you recall, before John the Baptist came, Israel had not received a prophet for well over 400 years. They were living in prophetic silence. The prophets apparently disappeared for generations and generations and they felt in silence. They felt in darkness. The Old Testament left off with these promises of this coming Messiah and years and years and years keeping past and there's no Messiah and there's no prophet and we're just left in darkness and suddenly the prophet finally shows up. The Messiah is coming. And so John was this great light in the darkness and he created such a buzz, he created such a stir that that's why he rose to fame. Everyone was enjoying it. This is great. The, the time of the Old Testament fulfillment is happening in our generation. So they loved listening to John. They loved following John. They loved joining this new, exciting, messianic movement. And John's got everyone fired up. He's got everyone ready for the coming Messiah. And Israel's going to take over Rome. And we're going to be kings and princes again. And they're all excited. And then when the Messiah finally shows up, and John says, there he is, they're done with the light now. They enjoyed his light for a while. When it was all hypothetical. But once it became real... Apparently, Jesus didn't meet their expectations. So they arbitrarily will listen to John until he starts saying the things that we don't want to hear. We will accept John as authority so long as he is reinforcing the things that we don't want to hear. And I do truly believe that Jesus knows that this is their motive. Jesus knows that this is why they abandoned the light and stopped valuing the authority that they used to value. I get that from verses 41 through 44. Jesus sort of turns the tables and brings his own accusations against his accusers and listen to one of them in verses 41 through 44. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? This is interesting. So Jesus is affirming, I've come not in my own name, but in my Father's name, and you've rejected me. But you will gladly embrace and accept any old false Messiah who comes in his own name. And what's the reasoning? Why does Jesus say, what, what causes them to do that? Why would they reject Jesus and accept a false Messiah? Well, he says at the beginning and the end, I do not accept glory from men, and he goes on to say, but you will accept the glory and praises from men. So Jesus, who knows the hearts of these people, he's under the impression that the reason they didn't like the Messiah that John pointed them to is in some way, shape, or form, the true Messiah takes away the glory and the praise that they were hoping to get out of the Messiah. In some way, shape, or form, they are seeking the glory and the praise and the adulation of men. And they thought the Messiah would continue that, would help them do that. But in fact, he actually took it away. Because isn't that exactly what Christianity is? Jesus demands we lay down our pride and give him glory. Jesus and John preached messages of repentance humility, sacrifice. Christianity, I would argue above all religions in the world, is a religion that kills your pride and it forces you to stop making yourself the focus and to make Christ and his people the focus. Christianity always puts you at the back of the bus. 
It makes everyone else more important than you. It makes Jesus more important than you. It does not allow you to keep your vanity intact. And that's what these people wanted. They wanted a Messiah who was in some, I don't know the details, but in some way, shape, or form was going to make them feel glorious and powerful and important. And Jesus made them humbled. They didn't want that. And by the way, not much has changed. Technology changes, governments change, but apparently human nature hasn't changed much in the last 2,000 years. Because the Bible tells us, the Bible prophesies that one of the primary reasons that people reject Jesus today is for this very reason. He refuses to simply tell you the things you want to hear. I get this from a prophecy from the Apostle Paul. tells Timothy, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. According to Paul, why are so many people going to abandon Christ for false teachers or false messiahs? Because they have things they want to hear and they're not hearing it from Christ. They're not hearing it from the gospel. And so they want to go find teachers who will glory them, who will tell them the things they want to hear. And this is the exact reason why so many people today either reject Christ or distort him and create some Jesus in their own image who just loves and appreciates and supports everything that they love and appreciate. It's a a form of self-glory, self-seeking. And that's exactly why in the first century... So many Jews would follow false messiahs over Christ. And so I think that being honest with ourselves, this might be a good place for us to stop and pause before we move on to our next witness and consider this questions humbly for ourselves. I ask you, just in your own heart, I'm not making any accusations. It's not a rhetorical question, sincerely. How important is the praise of men to you? How important is it for you to hear what you want to hear? I read it last year. I tried to, last year I did this thing where I read a book every month with the guys. And one of the books I read was a book on Christian counseling. It was very helpful for me. And one of the chapters that was the most convicting was he talked about how often discontent, not all the time, not 100%, but generally it's very often for discontent in our lives to ultimately flow from the fact that we have a desire to receive a certain amount of respect and adulation from men and we're not getting it. It doesn't matter if I'm living my life faithfully, following God's word, obeying God. If the people around me don't think highly of me, my life is in turmoil. And he talked about in Christian counseling, it's amazing how many people find freedom from their discontent and and, and and their troubles and their anxieties when they simply learn an old cliche which is that you should be seeking to please the Lord. It doesn't matter if the whole world hates you as long as you're doing what God appreciates. The less and less we care about what people think about us and the more and more we care about what God thinks about us, you'd be amazed at how much peace you will have. You'd be amazed at how content you can be in your life when you stop living up to other people's standards and start living up only to God's. That was Jesus' lifestyle after all. I am here to seek the praise of my Father. The praise of men be damned. And so I ask you, if you are walking as best as you can, no one's perfect, but if you are truly, if you're following the Lord and you're seeking to honor Him and praise Him, how much could the scorn and the dismissal and the disrespect of men bother you? 
All right, the, the Jews dismissed John's testimony because they had, they had unmet expectations for the Messiah. They, they wanted to continue to receive glory from men. Let us, by God's grace, be a people like Jesus who seek only God's approval. But with that aside, let's now press on to Jesus' second, and by his own admission, much more important witness. The second witness we must summon to the stand is Jesus' miracles. Look at verse 36 with me. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works the Father, that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So Jesus very clearly appeals to his own works, the very ones that God in eternity gave him to accomplish. Now, this technically, this word works is very broad here. It technically could refer to his entire life and ministry. In a very real sense, Jesus' entire life was just one long proof of his claims. But more than likely, what Jesus is really specifically referring to are his works, his miracles, his signs, and his wonders. Jesus vindicated the Father's claims about him by performing miracles that someone who was against God or lying about God would never be able to perform. And by the way, this is consistent with Scripture. This is always the purpose of miracles throughout your Bibles. Miracles were always given by God to authenticate the messenger's authority and establish his truthfulness. God gave miracles to Moses primarily for this reason. He came in with some bold claims. I'm going to free you from the most powerful nation in the world if you just obey me. (laughs) Yeah, that sounds like a suicide mission. And then he starts destroying Egypt. Okay, I guess this guy means what he says, right? And all the prophets do this. God gave them miracles so that people would see, I should probably listen to this guy. Miracles vindicate the authority and the truthfulness of the spokesman. And that's why even Jesus himself will later on appeal to them very clearly, saying, if I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Jesus believes that his miracles can prove his claims about his nature and his mission. So Jesus appeals to his miracles. And I would argue in a certain sense, in a certain sense, this witness is is still available to us today. And John the Baptist is gone. And, and it's not available to us in the sense that Jesus is obviously, his, his earthly ministry is fulfilled. Jesus is not in our presence working signs and wonders. But by God's grace, God has preserved for us, both in Scripture and in an incredibly reliable account even outside of Scripture, many external proofs which validate not just all of Christ's miracles, but his chief miracle. And that is his fulfillment of his promise to resurrect from the dead. In a certain sense, his miracles still bear witness to him today because we know today as good as a historian can possibly know that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And in a certain sense, that's really all the authority you need now to listen to him, right? At least that's how Paul feels. Keep your marker here in John, but turn to Acts chapter 17. This is a fascinating moment in history. Paul, in this context, is currently debating what would be, at his time, the greatest philosophers and debaters in the world. And the way that our culture elevates and glorifies 
earth and physical science scientists as like you know the gods, the high priests of our culture. Uh, the, the Greco-Roman world elevated the philosophers. It's the high priests of their culture, the, the philosophy of science. We've replaced it with the philosophy of earth and physical sciences. They replaced it with the science of philosophy. So he's talking to the world leaders, the smartest men in the world, the men who are literally moving and shaping society and culture. And he gives a defense of his views. And as much as I would love to read the whole passage, we don't have time. But I want you to focus in on his concluding remarks. Notice what purpose does the resurrection serve for Paul while he's debating secular, brilliant, philosophical scientists. And notice what he says, Acts 17, verses 30 and 31. This is his conclusion to his argument. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So Paul, talking to the Greek philosopher, says, God has appointed Jesus to judge the world one day. And the Greek philosopher is going to say, says who? Why on earth should I think that this Jewish guy from Nazareth is going to be my judge? And what's Paul's answer? Whether you like it or not, what's Paul's answer? Because God raised him from the dead. And we have historical witness to this fact remaining today. God raised Jesus from the dead. So if you ever find yourself in the middle of the night doubting your faith, doubting your own message, doubting, is God really going to judge the world one day? Am I right to worship and follow Jesus? When those doubts come on, you need to remind yourself of this. God raised him from the dead. His miracles continue to bear witness to his authority and his truthfulness even today. And so that's why he appeals to them. His miracles are a divine, not a human, a divine testimony to his own claims. But in my opinion, Jesus saves the best for last. He summoned John, that's a good witness. He summoned his miracles, that's a very good witness. But I would argue he saves the best for last. And he summons a very, very important witness, which is Scripture itself. Go back to John 5. Let's read verses 37 through 40 together. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, and yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. Let's stop there. In my humble opinion, this is the best attestation that Jesus has brought forward. He appeals to the scriptures. In other words, Jesus is saying that he is clearly and obviously the fulfillment of all scriptural types and all scriptural prophecies. The Bible itself attests to Jesus and the truthfulness of his claims. This, by the way, is at least in part, it's probably bigger than this, but in part, this is exactly what Jesus meant in the famous Matthew 5.17 verse when he told the Jews, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. 
They were written about Jesus, for Jesus, pointing toward Jesus, and he came to be the end of the law, the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament. The whole Old Testament was ultimately about Christ. It, it spoke of him in different ways and in different varieties, but it was all ultimately a means to lead us to Christ. That's the purpose of the Old Testament, to lead us to Jesus. And so Christ is very confident that his claims and his works are both supported by the Bible. In other words, he's saying all these other false messiahs that you've either chased after or you're about to chase after them, let's do a Bible study and let's see if they fit the bill. Because I promise they won't. I alone fulfill the scriptural prophecies and the scriptural requirements. And he is, Jesus is so... Uh, What's, what's like a righteous version of cocky? I don't know what that word would be, but he's righteously cocky about this. He is so confident about the scriptural claim to him that look at what he says in verses 45 through 47. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Jesus here is just being ruthless. The Pharisees, I mean, he wasn't just talking to Pharisees here, but the Jewish people, but especially the leaders, were obviously rightly obsessed with the Old Testament. And they checked everything by the Old Testament. And half of their arguments against Jesus are coming from the Bible. And so Jesus says, here's, here's what's so ironic. You guys are supposed to be the experts in the law. You guys are the experts on Moses. You've memorized Moses inside and out. You know Moses better than anybody. But guess what? Who's going to accuse you on Judgment Day? Moses. He, he obviously is going to be the one that judges them, but he's saying in sort of an insulting rhetorical fashion, I don't even need to judge you on, on Judgment Day. Moses himself has already judged you. You claim to be the experts in Moses, but Moses is on my side of this debate, not yours. You've staked all your hope in the one who's on my team. In other words, Jesus is telling these experts in the law that because they've missed the central message of the law, the whole purpose of the Old Testament is about Christ and they've missed it. So they are experts in the law, but they don't know it. They've missed it. And now the scriptures not only bear witness to Jesus, but as they do that, they simultaneously convict and condemn his, his opposition. They are going to be condemned by the very law that they purport to be experts in. And, and I, I want to say something to you. I think that this should really be a comfort to lay Christians everywhere. This little verse section here serves as a reminder to you that you can have a God-glorifying, deep and beautiful understanding of Scripture without a Ph.D., Jesus is condemning primarily Jewish leaders here who are, from academic standpoints, the experts in the law. These are people who truly do know a lot more about the Bible than the vast majority of, 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 of Jewish people in the first century. They know a ton about Scripture. And yet Jesus condemns them of not knowing it at all. They don't realize that the Scriptures do not save us in and of themselves. They save us by giving us access to the one who saves us. And so in that sense, the scriptures don't save you at all. Christ alone saves you. And he then is the whole focus and the whole attention of the Old Testament. And so these experts in the law have literally missed the whole point. 
They don't understand it at all. Yet, they're the experts. And so that means that there is something available to you today. You have the ability to understand Scripture better than every single biblical scholar who does not know Christ. There are experts out there, I suggest, that if you were to try to get into the debate, a debate with them on certain issues, they would run circles around you. There are experts in this world. There are these, these Bible scholars and these canonical scholars that they could make you look like a fool on a total number of historical, linguistic, canonical questions about the Bible. But many of those same scholars who are a lot smarter than you on some of these particular details don't know Christ. They don't see Christ in these scriptures. And that means then that no matter what debates on nuances they can beat you in, they will never know the Bible as well as you. As long as they are without Christ, you have the superior Bible knowledge. And this is not my word. This is Jesus's. If you miss Christ, you don't know your Bible. So never, ever, ever be intimidated by heathens who know more about the Bible than you because they do not know the Bible more than you. But I would also say that this comfort is like a double-edged sword. It also serves as a warning. For some of us, this blessing truly is a warning. For people like me, it's a warning. Because Jesus is here. Let me remind you, Jesus is not condemning the theological liberals of his day. Jesus is not interacting with a bunch of scholars who think, well, Moses didn't really write the Old Testament and it's not really inspired and there's a lot of patriarchy and misogyny and just a lot of problems with the Bible. That's not who he's dealing with. He's dealing with people who have a love for Scripture, a very high view of Scripture. On this issue, he's dealing with conservatives. And he says, in all of your love for theology and all of your love for study and all of the answers you're able to give to people, you've missed the most important thing. And so this warning is in many ways for churches a lot like ours. Churches that are filled with people who love to study theology and they love to learn more. And that's a good thing. Jesus is not condemning study in this text. That's not what this text is. We will always be a church that, that supports and promotes deepening your knowledge of Scripture and studying Scripture at a deeper level. I would love all of us to know the Bible as best as we possibly can, but we must always do so knowing this, that merely knowing a lot about the Bible will not save you. We must heed this warning to never confuse academic knowledge with spiritual maturity. Just because someone knows theology really well does not mean that they are a role model for you or your children. At least not in all areas. It doesn't even mean they're saved. <laughs> so while, again, we value studying theology, we must value intimacy with Christ and walking in, with holiness above all things. No one is saved, in other words, by a degree in biblical studies. We are saved by faith in Christ and in Christ alone. That's two applications, but I argue there's more. Jesus' third witness provides yet another application. As you go about doing your studies, Jesus has given you a hermeneutical principle. That's just a big fancy word. Hermeneutics is just the science of studying 
the Bible. The science of biblical interpretation. Believe it or not, whenever you read your Bible and interpret it, whether you recognize it or not, you have certain rules and practices you're following in your head. And so studying hermeneutics helps us to understand the Bible better because it's the science of how to interpret the Bible. And Jesus, when you're reading your Old Testament, has given you perhaps the most important hermeneutical principle you could possibly imagine. Which is that when you read your Old Testament, you, who do you need to find there? Jesus. You need to read your Old Testament with the aim of thinking, how does this text point me to Christ? Where is Christ in this text? That's exactly what Jesus says in verse 46. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. Why? For he wrote of me. When you read Moses, who's he actually writing about? Jesus. You need to find that. You need to find that. And, and this, by the way, is, is a very important part of Jesus' ministry. It's not just this one little offshoot verse here in John 5. Notice what Jesus says to his disciples in two different places after his resurrection. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Jesus' third and final witness is not actually a witness if it's not talking about him. But Jesus is crystal clear. Every single book of your Old Testament is talking about him. So don't read your Old Testament apart from Christ. Any interpretation of your Old Testament that doesn't involve Christ, you don't need it. Get rid of it. When you read your Bibles, find Christ there. And let me just finish with this. I know we're a little late on time, but I want to finish with this. A fourth application. This is why I love this witness so much. There's so much for us to learn from here. A fourth application for us is that like the resurrection, like Jesus' miracles, this is a witness that remains with us today. Jesus' witness is with us today. Turn, if you will, we'll conclude with this. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, where the Apostle Peter is going to shift from eyewitness testimony to the reliability and testimony of the Scriptures. 2 Peter chapter 1. Go past the book of James. If you get to the Johns, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, you've gone too far. 2 Peter chapter 1, and let's read verses 16 through 21 together. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. 
and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Notice what Peter doing. Peter's saying, listen, this isn't just some made-up wives' tale religion. Our religion are things we saw and we witnessed. We saw these things. We were there. And that's why we're telling them to you. But then what does he immediately trans- transition into? And guess what these things also did? They fulfilled and confirmed the, test, the scriptures we've already been believing. So guess what? You don't need to have been there. You don't need to see the transfiguration. You don't need to see the resurrection because you have a witness that those things confirmed. It was sure then, it's even more sure now, the prophetic scriptures, knowing this, that they were not written by men, but men were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You have God's testimony to Jesus. Here's the proof you need. How do you know Jesus is God? How do you know he was the Messiah? Because he rose from the dead and because the scriptures were fulfilled in him. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you would do well to pay attention to. Peter saying, read your Bible. There's your proof. There's your testimony. And so we can simply continue to hear the witness of God's self-authenticating word which is living and active capable of being used by God to illuminate our minds and our hearts. And so those are Jesus' three witnesses. John, miracles, and the scriptures, all of which serve for us even today to confirm that we ought to worship Him as God and Messiah.